All right. Good morning, West Park. Yeah, as Sam said, if you will turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6. 1 through 6. So, really quick, a quick story to start us off. During World War II, the night night before an important mission, General George Patton gave a famous speech to his army. Now, if you've ever heard or read a speech by General Patton, you know that I can't read it up here. Um, because he was as good at profanity as he was at leading an army. But if you're reading a speech by him, especially this one before this important mission, and you can get through all of that, it really is quite amazing. So I want you to try to imagine this scene. Imagine you're General Patton, and you're talking to this army. And this army is about to go out to battle. And this army is made up of a bunch of young men, teenage men, Men in their young 20s about to go into battle, and they know there's a good chance many of them will lose their life. They will lose friends, they will lose brothers, maybe even lose their own life. This is a big deal, right? This is a big speech. What do you say? What do you say? What speech do you give in that situation? The amazing thing that I found reading this speech is that General Patton didn't use that speech to give strategy at all. There was no strategy whatsoever In his speech, what he did, what he did for these young men was remind them what's true about them. He reminded them what's true about them. He reminded them that they have the best equipment. He reminded them that they have the best training. He reminded them that they have the best leadership. And he reminded them that there's an entire country behind them. Heading into battle, Patton knew that his men didn't need strategy. They needed to be reminded why they could defeat their enemy. So in our passage this morning, John does the same exact thing. He makes it clear that we are fighting a very real battle against sin, but then he reminds us what is true about us in the war that we're fighting. So let's start working through it. We're going to start just looking at the first two verses. We're going to spend most of our time there. Starting in verse 1, it says this, My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. You've noticed going through this passage that John gives us a few reasons why he wrote this letter that we know as 1 John. And here he says, I wrote this that you may not sin. But then he's going to balance that statement out. He's going to say, I know that we w- you will sin. John knows that we will sin until Jesus comes back to redeem creation or until we go to be with him, we will struggle with sin. So in this passage, John is going to take a general Patton approach. He reminds us what is true about us, even in the struggle. So for those of us who are Christians, John is going to remind us of our security in Christ. Here's what he says. Continue in verse 1. He says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. There are two words in this passage that if you really understand them, two words that if you understand them, you're going to understand Christianity better, and you're going to understand yourself better. They'll change your life. The two words are propitiation and advocate. Jesus is our propitiation, and Jesus is our advocate. So let's start with propitiation. It's a fun word to say, right? Propitiation. You can say that a few times fast. That's a fun one. Probably don't use that in your daily life, right? You don't say propitiation a lot. But what does it mean? 
What does propitiation mean? Here's the first thing we need to know. Propitiation is not just a Christian idea. It's not just a Christian idea. We see it all the time in ancient religions. Here's an example. In Greek mythology, there's a story of Princess Helen of Sparta. And so Princess Helen of Sparta gets abducted by Prince Paris, and he takes her home to Troy. So the Greeks, the Greek army, starts pursuing on a boat going to Troy to get this princess back. But as they're on this ship, there's a wind pushing back in their face that doesn't allow them to go. They can't catch up because of this wind. And then a plague spreads across the entire ship. And so they all go, and they, they take this as meaning that the gods are mad at them. They take this as being the wrath of the gods. So they go to a prophet, and they say, what do we do? What do we do? How can we, how can we get to this princess? Because all this stuff is happening. And he looks at the general, and he says, you have to sacrifice your own daughter. Sacrifice your own daughter, and all this will stop. So he sacrifices his own daughter. He has a big ceremony, sacrifices her. And the, the, they say the wrath of the gods is propitiated. And so all of a sudden, the plague goes away. The wind stops blowing in themselves, they're in their faces, and they're able to go get this princess. That's a famous story, and that's propitiation right there. That's the idea of propitiation in, in, in a pagan religion. Propitiation is the removal of the wrath of God through an atoning sacrifice. We see that over again, over and over again in the stories of pagan religions. One of the gods gets mad at you because you don't give them enough attention. They try to make your life difficult. And then you appease them with the sacrifice, and their wrath is propitiated. Here's another more practical example. Something, uh, how we see propitiation in our daily life. Let's, see that, let's say that you are at, on Middlebrook Pike, and you're driving, and you're on your phone. I know you never do that, but you're on your phone, you're driving, you're not paying attention. Someone stopped at a red light, and you ram into the back of them and cost thousands of dollars worth of damage. Now, if you do that, they have a charge against you. Right? They have a charge against you for thousands of dollars worth of damage. But then once you pay the money you owe, that, is, that person is propitiated. Right? That person is propitiated. They have no more claim against you. So we see propitiation. It's not just a Christian idea. We see it in pagan religions. We see it in everyday life. But what does it mean that Jesus is our propitiation? What does it mean for Christians? What does propitiation mean for us? What sets the Christian view of propitiation apart from the others? The Bible tells us that our God is holy. The Bible tells us that our God is set apart. Our, the Bible tells us that our God is so unlike any person or any other God. Our God is without sin. Our God is pure perfection. Look at what he says here in Exodus 34. This is God talking about himself. He says this. He says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That's amazing, right? That's an amazing passage. That's our God. But here's the thing. We can't stop there. Look what it says next. This is the next verse. It says, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He does not leave the guilty unpunished. He is a good God. He is a gracious God. But he does not leave the guilty unpunished. A good God has to deal with sin and evil. And we all know this. We all know this because we all want him to. 
right? We want a God that deals with sin and evil. His love and his graciousness can't cancel out his justice and his righteousness, and we don't want it to. Just put it, put it on yourself here. Imagine someone wrongs you. Imagine someone hurts you. Imagine someone wrongs or hurts someone you love. What do you want? You want justice, right? Don't you? We want ju- That's right. We want justice when someone wrongs us or wrongs someone that we love. We want justice. So we wouldn't want a God that hides from sin. That's not a good God. That would make him a coward. We do not want a God that hides from sin. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. There's a famous novel. There's a famous novel called Murder on the Orient Express. Murder on the Orient Express. Famous novel came out in 1935, and they did a movie about it a couple years ago. So just, just spoiler alert, warning, I'm going to tell you about the ending, okay? And I know someone's going to come up to me after and complain that that was going to be on your summer reading list, but you've literally had 85 years to read it. So I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> Close your ears if you need to. But anyway, here's how, the, here's how the novel goes. On this train, there are 12 passengers, and there's a murder. And so the, this detective gets on, and he starts doing his work, and that's the whole book. He's trying to figure out who committed this murder. He wants to find out who committed the murder so that they can have justice. Well, as the book goes on, and there's a reason that it's still around 85 years later, because the ending is amazing. After, after searching around, after, after doing his detective work, after, after doing everything he needs to do, we find out at the end of the book that everyone did it. Everyone had a part in the murder. Everyone was guilty. Here's the thing. The Bible says the same thing about us. The Bible says the same thing about us. We love to point the finger, right? Democrats say it's Republicans' fault that everything's, you know, gone wrong. Republicans say the same thing about Democrats. We're all pointing the finger at each other saying, you're the problem, right? The Bible says we're all the problem. Every single one of us, me, you, everyone in this room, we are the problem. We are all guilty. Romans 3.23 says this, we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So that's why we're uncomfortable with God as judge. That's why you never hear songs about God as a judge when you're listening to Christian radio, right? That's why we're uncomfortable with that. Because we know that the verdict on us is guilty. 100%. We are deserving of the wrath of a just God. We are deserving fully, only, of his wrath. But here's where the good news comes in. Here's where the good news comes in. Here's where the good news comes in that we saw in our passage. We need a propitiation to satisfy God's wrath. So what did God do? What did God do? This is what sets Christianity apart. God didn't say, sacrifice your daughter to me, and I'll be okay. (laughs) He didn't say, sacrifice your daughter to me, and I won't be mad anymore. He didn't say, pay off your debt, (laughs) because we couldn't do that. Here's what he did. He gave himself, right? God gave himself as the propitiation. Through Jesus Christ, he stepped in as our substitute. He came from heaven to earth. He lived the perfect life that we could not live, and then he went to our cross. He went to the cross that we deserve. And there, every ounce of the penalty that you and I deserve was poured into him. The wrath of God that we deserve was on him. God himself was the atoning sacrifice that we desperately need. He was the propitiation for our sins. 
So propitiation isn't just a Christian idea, but only our God stepped in as the substitute that we need. Only our God went to the cross. Only our God put himself on the hook for our sin. But it doesn't stop there. 1 Corinthians 5.21 says this. It says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So here's the thing. Here's the thing. The message of the gospel is not just that your sinfulness was put on Jesus and you are made clean. It is also that his righteousness has been put on you. You are now clothed in his righteousness. Jesus got what you deserved on the cross. He got the wrath of God. He got death. And because of that, you get what he deserves. You get the love of God for all of eternity. So it's not just that your slate of mistakes is wiped clean. God takes that slate of yours and writes Jesus' accomplishments on them. That's the gospel, right? That's the gospel. We see this in, in, in ancient times. In ancient times in battle, they would do this thing that, that, that we don't often see. But instead of having, uh, having two armies go at each other, they would take one champion from each army. And we know about that, right? David and Goliath. That's what happens, right? You ever wonder why David and Goliath are the only ones fighting each other? That's why. Each army would take and send out a champion. And whoever won that battle, the rest of their army was victorious. So the Philistines send out Goliath, the Israelites send out David, and David wins. Now, the Israelites didn't even raise anything, right? They didn't even put on their armor. They didn't fight at all, but all of them are victorious because David is victorious. They're all victorious because their champion was victorious. That's us, right? That's us. We couldn't defeat sin. We couldn't defeat death. We couldn't defeat Satan, but Jesus did. And because Jesus did, because he lived the perfect life we couldn't live and died the death that we deserve, we get what he earned. We are righteous because of him. And here's the amazing news. Here's the amazing news. It just keeps building. It just keeps getting better. The good news of what Jesus did on the cross is only the first part of the story. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, but the passage also says that he is our advocate He's our advocate. This means that he was our representative on the cross, but he didn't stop being our representative after his death. He is still our representative. He is our representative now. Advocate is, is a legal term. It's a legal term. Advocate is someone who, who argues your case. So if you were a Christian, if you were in Christ, Jesus is your advocate for the Father. He is pleading your case like a lawyer to the Father. Now on your own, on your own, you don't have a case, right? I don't have a case. We are all 100% guilty. And here's the thing, just to be honest with you, I know that about myself. I know that I'm guilty. I've seen my sin. I know how great of a sinner that I am. And because of that, this has really caused me at times in my life to misunderstand what it means that Jesus is my advocate. Here's what I've always pictured. Or here's what I pictured growing up. Here's how I would have pictured this scene when you say Jesus is my advocate. I picture it like this. I sin again, right? I sin again, and I imagine Jesus going to the Father and getting down on his knees and begging him to forgive me, begging him to forgive me. And God the Father has my file out, right? You see Bishop across the front, and he's just shaking his head. Like, not again, right? Not again. But Jesus is down on his knees begging the Father, saying, Father, 
I know Jake has messed up over and over again, but please just forgive him one more time. Just one more time. After all I did for you on earth, after all I did on the cross, please just forgive him. Then the father relents. I get a clean slate. I'm back on probation until I sin again. (laughs) But here's the problem. I'm a great sinner, right? I am a great sinner. So in the back of my mind, I always wondered this. When will God finally give up on me? When will God finally give up on me? When will God finally say, this is ridiculous. I'm done with this guy, right? He claims to be a Christian. He's in ministry, right? I'm done with this guy. But that's not it at all. That is not it at all. Jesus is our attorney, and his defense is his work on the cross. (laughs) He stands before the Father in heaven, and every time you sin, he opens up his portfolio and lays out the exhibits of Good Friday before the judge. He brings out a picture of his perfect life. He brings out a picture of his crown of thorns. He shows the blood he spilled, and he plays a clip of his final cry when he yelled, It is finished. That's his defense, right? That's what it means that he is our advocate. Here's what you have to get. Here's what I had mixed up. Jesus doesn't appeal for mercy on our behalf. He doesn't beg the Father for mercy. He appeals for justice. He has satisfied all the claims against me. So now he says to the Father, I paid the full price for his sin. I took what he deserves so that he can have what I deserve, and he cannot be held accountable for that sin. That's what it means to be in Jesus. That's what it means that he is our advocate. He goes to the Father and appeals for justice because of what he accomplished. So listen here. Satan is going to keep reminding you of your sin. We just sing about that, right? Satan is going to keep reminding you of your sin. He's going to keep throwing what you've done in your face. Maybe even right now, you're skeptical. (laughs) Maybe even right now, he's telling you all this is too good to be true. He's the prosecutor pointing his finger at you, reminding you of all the mistakes you've made. He's saying that your sin is too great to be forgiven. But that's when we point to our advocate, right? That's why we point to Jesus. Not just what he did on the cross, but also what he's doing for us right now. We point to him. The, if, if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, this, is just, this has been so helpful for me this week, just reading these words. If you're a Christian, the words of the old hymn, before the throne of God above, they apply to you. Just listen to this. Listen to this, listen to this hymn. It says this, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. How amazing. is that? That's our story, right? That's it. That's what this passage is saying. That's what this passage is saying. It's not because of what you did, it's because of what Jesus did. And he appeals as your advocate for justice. Before we move on, there's a part of verse 2 that I want to point out to you. We can't move on without talking about it. It says this, it says, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. It's important we get this right, okay? It's important we get this right, what this is saying. 
John isn't saying that all of God's wrath against the sins of every person in the world has been propitiated through Jesus. Because then every person in the world would be saved, and the Bible is clear that that's not the case, right? Not everyone in the world is saved. Only those who have repented of their sins and turned to Jesus are saved. So if you're here this morning, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, if you're not a Christian, if you came with a friend, if you came just to check this out this morning, here's the thing. None of what I've said applies to you. (laughs) None of the good news applies to you. The only thing that applies to you, according to the Bible, is that God's wrath is on you. But it doesn't have to stay that way, right? It doesn't have to stay that way. I hope that you have seen why you need Jesus. Your need for him is great, just like all of us who are Christians. Our need for him is great. And maybe this morning you know that he is calling you to trust in him. I would just ask that you not leave here without at least talking to someone right? If you're, if you're curious, if you want to know what that looks like, talk to someone, talk to a pastor, talk to the person who brought you, grab someone beside you, ask them how you can come to know Jesus. The good news that we've talked about can be true of you. It can be true of you, but if you're not in Christ, it's not. It's not the wrath of God. It's still on you. Now, for Christians, what does this mean for us? What does it mean for us as Christians? Jesus says this in John 10, John 10, verses 15 and 16, he says this. He says, I lay down my life for the sheep, and other sheep I have that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. In other words, here's what Jesus is saying. There are children of God. There are sheep. There are Christians scattered throughout the whole world. They are scattered throughout the whole world. And that's what led the preacher, John Stott, to say it this way. He said this. He said, we must be global Christians with a global vision Because our God is a global God. We must be global Christians with a global vision because our God is a global God. No one who truly knows Jesus, no one who knows what we've talked about this morning, no one who truly knows him is content to hog him all to themselves. No one who knows Jesus doesn't want to tell others about him. And there are people all over the world who need to hear this news. So as Christians, what are you doing, right? What are you doing to get this news to them? West Park's doing a lot, right? West Park's doing a lot. What can you do to support that? Is it financially? Is it praying? Is it going yourself? What can you do? If God has, if God has his people spread out throughout the world, if there are people who are going to come to know Jesus, what can you do to make sure that the good news gets to them? What can you do? Let's move on to the second part of our passage, and this is going to be a lot quicker. Second part of our passage John talks about our response to Jesus' propitiation and his advocacy. Starting in verse 3, it says this. It says, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Other passages in 1 John that you're going to see throughout the summer go really deep into the what of keeping God's commandments. They're going to answer the question, what does it look like to live like Jesus? You're going to see that clearly next week. What does it look like to live like Jesus? And since we're going there the rest of the summer, here's what I want to do this morning. I want to focus in on the why. I want to focus in on the why. Why do Christians keep 
God's commandments. According to John here, why do Christians keep God's commandments? I think this is something that we mix up. And it's just a little tiny mistake that we make, but it has horrible consequences. I think that we typically think that our obedience will lead to intimacy with God. We think of it like this. If I'm obedient and I keep his commandments, I'll be close to God and I'll have intimacy with him. I'll know him well. But what John says here is that it's flipped. We experience intimacy with God through what Jesus did for us. And then in response to that, we act in obedience. We don't obey to gain intimacy with God. We obey out of the intimacy we have with God through what Jesus did on the cross. So at our church in, in Austin, we've been singing this new song lately. And there's this, song in the, in the, there's this line in this worship song that we sing, and it says this. It says, fix your mind on this one truth. God is madly in love with you. And I say that because when we first started singing that, I struggled with it. <laughs> like for some reason, that line, I just really struggled with it. I was uncomfortable singing it. I was uncomfortable singing the words that God is madly in love with me. When that line came up, I just kind of saying it, but didn't really mean it. And, and I had to stop and ask myself why that is. Why am I so uncomfortable with this line that God is madly in love with me? And I think the reason is this. I think what I found is that sometimes if I'm being honest with myself, I don't really believe that God loves me all that much. <laughs> I don't really believe that this is true. I don't believe that he is madly in love with me. It's the same thing, I, I, I was just thinking back, it's the same thing I experienced with a song that was popular like 10 years ago. You know that song, How He Loves, right? How He Loves, it just keeps going, oh, how he loves, oh, he just kept repeating that over and over again. And I never liked that song. <laughs> and I thought just, it was just because it's not a good song. But the reason I think that is, I think the reason I didn't like singing that song is because I didn't really believe what I was singing. <laughs> I was sitting there and we're singing over again, oh, how he loves us, oh, how he loves us. And I'm singing it, but I just can't really believe it. I don't really believe that God loves me all that much. I don't believe that he is madly in love with me. And here's what I've found. When I fall into that doubt, when I fall into that doubt about God's love for me, I try really hard to obey him. I try so hard to obey him. I work so hard to keep his commandments. And when I do that, when I, when I doubt, I'm super productive. I am really productive for the church. Maybe more productive. I am so productive. But the problem, the problem is that my motivation for keeping God's commands and working hard is to earn his love and to earn the love of other people. I follow God's commandments to try to make myself worthy of his love and gain intimacy with him. So when people don't give me the approval that I think that I deserve, when people don't give me the approval that I think I've earned, it absolutely destroys me. <laughs> it destroys me. And I start to think that God views me the same way. It's just a subtle thing. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm doing this every day. I'm working for God every day in ministry, but I don't believe that he truly loves me, and I don't believe that he can love me unless I earn it. And I never feel like I'm doing enough to earn it. That's totally wrong. <laughs> that's totally wrong. Maybe you're with me. Maybe you feel that same thing. Just know that's wrong. We are wrong. <laughs> We keep God's commandments because we are secure in his love. We can look at what Jesus did on the cross and what he's doing for us in heaven right now, and we can know that we are secure in his love, and it is out of that love that we keep his commandments. Intimacy 
comes before obedience. We see this most clearly in John chapter 8. The famous story, you know it. In the first century, in the first century, if you were Jewish in this Jewish culture and you were caught in adultery, you could be stoned to death. So this, this group of, of uh, Jewish leaders, they find a woman, she's committing adultery, they catch her, and they bring her to Jesus. And they're ready to kill her. They're ready to stone her. And they ask Jesus what they should do. And Jesus says this, he says a famous line, we all have heard it. He says this, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And everyone drops their stones and walks away. And then Jesus approaches this woman. Here's what I want you to think about. Jesus approaches this woman. She's on the ground. She's struggling. She's feeling this shame. Jesus walks up to her. I want you to think, who's the one person who could actually cast a stone? (laughs) Jesus, right? He who is without sin casts the first stone. Jesus can cast that stone. Jesus has the right as God. She has sinned against him. He has the right as, as God to punish her any way he wants to. But instead he says this. He says, where are your accusers? And the woman replies that there are none left. So Jesus says this. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. I want you to notice the order there. Notice the order there. You and I would say this. We would say, if you go and sin no more, then I won't condemn you. Clean yourself up and get back to me. Go clean yourself up and then you get back to me. But Jesus puts intimacy before obedience. He says this. He says, I don't condemn you. I love you. Now go and sin no more. I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. It is only through God's acceptance that we can be truly liberated from sin. It is only through his love that we can truly be liberated from sin. So let me close with this. So in high school, I played football at Hardin Valley Academy down the road. And I played quarterback, and going into my senior season, we had pretty high expectations that we were going to have a pretty good year. Had a bad year my junior year. We thought senior year was our year. We thought, you know, we're going to have a good year. Had a pretty good team. We thought it was going to be a, be a, be a really good season. So the week before the season, we have a scrimmage just to tune up for the season. And I don't know, if, if you're an athlete in here, if you've ever, ever played sports, you know that sometimes it's just not your day, right? Sometimes it's not your day. The shots aren't going in, right? Your, your drive is slicing every time. It's just not your day. Well, this scrimmage was that day for me. Nothing was going my way. At the start of the game, we march down the field, and I'm playing quarterback, and I throw an interception in the end zone. And then we get the ball back, and the very next throw I throw, they intercept it and return it for a touchdown. And then we get the ball back, and I get sacked, and I fumble. It's a nightmare game, right? One thing after the other. And everything turned out all right. We had a pretty good season. But that day, it felt like the sky was falling for me as a 17-year-old, right? I felt like I had forgotten how to play this sport that I had played my whole life. It felt like I, was, I had the weight of the world on my shoulders. It felt like I had let everyone down, and it felt like the world was crumbling, right? Because the weight was all on me. I tell you that because the next day, I'm a 17-year-old. I'm, I'm pouting because this has happened. I'm, I'm feeling sorry for myself Everyone's giving me a hard time. And I walk into my bedroom after practice the next day, and there's a note on my bed from my dad. And this is what it said. It said, I love you, 
and I'm proud of you, not just because you're a good football player. I love you, and I'm proud of you, not just because you're a good football player. (laughs) You see, I didn't need in that moment, as a 17-year-old kid, I didn't need someone to coach me up. I needed someone to remind me that no matter how bad things got, I was still loved. And that love wasn't based on how I performed. I was loved just because my dad loves me. (laughs) I was loved just because he loved me, not because I was a football player. That love was secure, and no bad game could mess it up. That's what I want you to leave here with this morning, Christians. If you are in Christ, that's the message I want to leave you with here this morning. If you're in Christ, God's love for you is secure because Jesus is our propitiation. He was our propitiation on the cross, and he is our advocate now. And now, since you have intimacy with Jesus, since you know him because of what he did on the cross, go and walk in obedience. Go and walk in obedience out of that intimacy.